You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 59. Today is the replay of feeling safe at work. These are the five strategies that I have for feeling safe at work. And if you are ready to become the Boss MD in 2023, then head to bosssurgery.com. This is where you learn what I have to offer when it comes to dealing with other people, dealing with complications, negotiating what you want, and stop hating clinic. Head to bosssurgery.com for more. And if you are listening to this before December 25th, there is a special deal offered, so head to bosssurgery.com to hear more. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Let's talk about feeling safe at work. I'm sure, you know, again, this idea, this idea of being safe at work was one that came to me um, in a coaching session. That I'll tell you a little bit more about. Um, so I thought it was a really important one. There's so many different topics to talk about. Again, this came from a coaching session that I had with someone. And, you know, I kind of asked her, I was like, what do you want out of life? And she said, <clears throat> I just want to, I want to feel safe going to work. Um, and I, you know, I really explored this idea, like what does feeling safe at work mean? And I mean, we know what safe doesn't feel like. It's these emotions that a lot of us are having right now, feeling trapped and hopeless and frustrated and annoyed, you know, having dread going to work, feeling isolated, overwhelmed, all of these emotions that are coming up you know, since the pandemic and probably were going on before the pandemic certainly has been, you know, exacerbated by what's going on. But these are the things that we're going through right now. So, you know, what is making us feel unsafe? And there's these thoughts that come into our mind about feeling unsafe of, you know, we go to work, I feel disrespected. You know, I don't feel like anybody appreciates me. You know, everyone's dumping these dumb requests on me. My time is just wasted. And, you know, I can't do my job because of it. And I'm not compensated for any of this work that I'm doing. And I just dread going to work. What am I, what am I doing? And I've lost my motivation. And we don't exactly know how to get out of it. Um, and everything just feels just so bad that, you know, like, we just don't trust ourselves anymore. Because in the end, like, why do we keep going to work if we feel all these things? So, what does safe look like then? And so I tried to get an idea of what safe felt like. And I think to feel safe means that we are ourselves. We can trust ourselves to be ourselves. And it doesn't matter what other people do. We are unaffected and maybe not unaffected. I was thinking about this earlier that maybe unaffected is the wrong word. Maybe it's the, I want to be able to choose what how I re, uh, respond to something. And it's, it's in that choice, I think, that we have all of our power and we want to have that choice. And what it is, is that we don't add to the drama with our own mental drama. That's what I feel is the idea of being safe. So first it was to define what it is. And of course, then the question is, how do I know what safe feels like? And I've done this for myself. You know, I went through the military experience where obviously it's not even just feeling physically safe, but just feeling safe in your own skin and and doing new things and having to navigate that. But going through the employed experience where I had loss of autonomy, like we all have, a lot of us employed folks feel 
then going into private practice where that's a whole host of other issues, um, often of your own making. And so I've done this myself of how do I navigate through these environments and feel safe uh, in these environments to where I really want to go to work every day. So I thought I boiled it down to five traps that we fall into that create this feeling of I'm not safe. And the traps we fall into are we mind read, and I'll explain that. We don't navigate our negative emotions. You know, we fall into the victim and villain roles, and we try to change people, and we fail to create boundaries. Those are, I think, the top five things that keep us from feeling safe at work. So I want to focus on what you can do. And it's because we can't make anyone else do anything. Now, towards the end, I'm going to say we can't actually influence other people, but we really can't tell anyone else to do anything. And it's not anyone's responsibility to do something different for us to feel a certain way. How we feel is a choice. It's a choice based on our thoughts and what we decide that we're going to feel rather than what someone else is going to do. And this is that idea of I can be safe going anywhere because I know that I'm going to be able to um, protect myself in any environment. I think that's the most important um, aspect to consider. Okay, so let's talk about this one. I fall into this trap all the time, this idea of mind reading. And what happens is there's, um, you know, what does mind reading mean? So there's four ways we interact with other people. And I, you know, I just explored this over the last few days of what mind reading is, because really what it is, we fill in the blanks of what we think people are thinking about us. Then I explored this in our, in our interactions and these four ways that we interact with people have to do with, we hear something, or first, actually, I should say, in our mind, we have an idea of what's going on. You know, um, I'll give a very simple exam example. I received a text message from another physician, another surgeon, and in my mind, I was um, had played over this experience that we had earlier today. I was a little bit frustrated with him because we had mutual patient and we had a difference of opinion. So I was already kind of frustrated with him and I'm on a call with someone and text comes across and I see the name and I, I suddenly just started going like, I can't believe this guy. You know, I'm like going through telling this entire story in my head about this. And you know, when I then interact with him, which is like, so there's in my mind, then there's, you know, what I say to him, which is like, I, I return his text and, I'm, you know, kind of a little bit brief, and a little bit abrupt, because in my mind, I'd already kind of created this scenario where he's, you know, asking something of me that I didn't agree with. And so, you know, I, I answer, you know, answer the phone. I'm like, hey, and he's like, what? Uh, hey, what? <laughs> So now he's not responding to I'm talking and he's not even aware of this entire story that I've told in my head. And so then he says, well, I was just going to see if you wanted to kind of join me in this case tomorrow. I was going to take on, take it on. And I thought he was going to ask me to do that. So, you know, I had something in my mind that I interacted with him and then he heard me and then he had whatever went on in his head too. So there's four ways that our interactions with other people can be derailed and the most important thing is to recognize that we have the capacity to do it. And anytime, you know, I'm coaching with someone, when we try to deal with the circumstance of what we're looking at is asking yourself, what exactly did they say? What exactly did the email say? 
And it's funny what happens when you look at it, because when we look at what they actually say, or we look at what we actually read in the email, and then we ask ourselves, what else was I filling in? What was I adding to this? And it's remarkable when you see just how often we mind read. And I caught myself doing this a few times, uh, actually. Um, It's just really funny how we do that. And so I, I challenge you all, when you have an interaction, to challenge yourself, to ask yourself, what are the facts in this case? So the next thing that we do is we don't manage negative emotions. Now, we're surgeons. These are hard things that we do. You know, we go to work every day, people's lives in our hands. It's impossible to know everything that could happen. It's impossible to have perfect surgeries all the time. It's impossible to not be in a bad mood sometimes. You know, we have negative emotions all the time. So what we do with them is going to make the difference between how we feel in a day and, you know, how we don't feel. So how do you even deal with negative emotions? And the first thing, which is so funny, is understanding, like, what are the negative emotions that we have? Because if you ask a, ask a surgeon, like, how do you feel? And initially, when I talked about this, um, you know, I'm like, I don't know, happy, sad, hungry, bored, <laughs> you know, our, the language and the ability to, for us to articulate our feelings is so limited just because we're just not used to describing it. You know, we're not used to thinking all the wide variety of emotions that we have. And I highly recommend Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart because she describes lots of different emotions and the nuances of each. And I find that these are most helpful. Um, A lot of times when I first started coaching through the Life Coach School, they focus a lot on the cognitive behavioral therapy model of a neutral circumstance leads to our thoughts. Our thoughts leads to an emotion. The emotions are where we get our actions from and that leads us to our results. And initially when I was coaching, I focused a lot on the thoughts. And lately what I'm finding is that I'm really focusing on the emotions because sometimes the thought that we want to have, especially if it's kind of buried or if we can't quite get to it, is a little bit harder, especially in the moment. So in my day-to-day um you know, interactions with other people, I try to focus on how I'm feeling because knowing how I'm feeling will lead me to the thought that may be the problem. And it also is a way for me to direct how I want to feel. And with these negative emotions, and I realized like, why am I feeling anxious? You know, why am I feeling, um, you know, on edge? You know, why am I feeling fearful? Why am I feeling irritated? You know, asking myself and exploring what is coming up for me when that negative um, emotion comes up is really helpful. And sometimes, you know, these emotions can be so negative or so, you know, trying to give us a direction that we feel like we have to do something about it. We feel like I have to act on it. And we actually really don't. Uh, The most important thing to keep in mind is that these negative emotions are feedback. It's telling us exactly how we're feeling. And I know a lot of us have, have experienced anger before and, you know, anger is, is feels necessary. It's important. It's loud. You know, it really gives us um, a lot of power 
And I think that that's why we can tend to lean on anger. Anger is like an accelerant. It's going to really power us to do something. The main problem though with anger, it doesn't always give us a direction. And it's helpful to recognize that anger is often a secondary emotion. Anger covers up the one that we may be either avoiding or not sure we're having or really can't understand as well. Um, I posted something in the Boss Facebook group um, a number of months ago about um, this wheel, like anger leads to this whole wheel of different emotions. You know, the anger can be secondary to frustration, irritation, powerlessness, resentment. Um, so anger in itself may not be the most specific emotion, and it may not be able to give you the reason why you're angry. Um, a lot of times I find that my anger is traced to powerlessness. You know, when we're in the in the hospital, and if you find yourself angry, um, or even, you know, just that that underlying irritation is asking yourself, why am I feeling this way? Because when I do, it tends to be powerlessness. I can't control the fact that I want the OR to go faster. I can't control the fact this patient is not following what I recommend. I can't control, you know, having things go perfectly all the time. And so what happens is, is that I then turn in, you know, the anger is what makes me interact with other people in that way. If you remember those four steps, if I'm in my head feeling powerless, and then I throw anger on there as an accelerant. So you can imagine what my words and my actions are going to reflect. And so now this is what the other person has to deal with. They don't know what's going on in my mind. They only know that I'm saying these words sharply, that I'm doing these actions. And then now they have to take what I have now given them and then filter it through whatever they're going through. If they're having a bad day, if they're feeling insecure, if they're feeling frustrated, then it's very easy to take my words and then have thoughts about that. And that's going to then allow, you know, turn them into having an action and um, a result that now I have to deal with. And so you can see how we ping pong, ping pong back and forth with our um, interactions that don't necessarily help us, especially if you're throwing accelerants on what's already an underlying uh, thought. Fear is another one that we may see a lot. And fear is one of those emotions of like, they it doesn't give us a direction all the time either. In fact, I, I think the main direction it gives us is go home, go back under the bed and everything will be fine. Of course, we all know that hiding under the bed doesn't make us feel any more safe. So fear is definitely not um, an emotion that is going to lead us to this feeling of feeling safe at work. And oftentimes this fear comes from, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I don't think I can control this. But if we take this emotion as not something we have to do anything about, um, I wrote an article called, you know, stop resisting the imposter. You know, the imposter in us is just simply feedback from our brain, just like fear is. It is feedback and it can give you a direction if you listen to where it's coming from. So what are, you know, what are you afraid of? What is the problem? What is it that you think you can't control? And is, is that actually true? And I don't know what's going to happen. Well, what if we did know what's going to happen? And so really sitting down with these emotions and asking yourself, why am I feeling this? If we ignore the fact 
that it makes us uncomfortable, this negative emotion, then we can sit down and say, what is it telling me? And can I now give myself a direction? Can I take this information and move in a direction that's going to be helpful? So giving myself a direction and some and recognizing this feedback. I've talked about this before with complications, you know, understanding the difference between an emotion. When you get down to the details, and this was what I really, you know, leaned into um, reading Brene Brown's book on um, Atlas of the Heart, was this difference of guilt versus shame. Shame resilience, you know, our ability to overcome shame is really important, um, especially in the jobs that we do, because everything that we do has the potential to lead us to shame. And guilt is, I feel bad something happened. You know, we do things that are high stakes. Something bad could happen all the time. And we can feel bad about that. Guilt is purposeful. You don't want to feel great about any kind of bad event, but shame turns us into, this is about me. This happened because I am bad. You know, so guilt, I feel bad this happened versus shame. I feel bad because I've done this. Um, knowing the difference between those two is really helpful. So the way to have shame resilience is recognizing that guilt makes us seek other people out. You know, I want reassurance. I need help. Like, I hate that this happened. I feel terrible. I need to commiserate. And shame is, I'm terrible. No one wants to be around me. I don't want to show anybody. I want to, to go where I'm isolated. And so you can see this, if we fall along that path of shame and we keep ourselves isolated, we're gonna be um, really setting us up for not feeling safe at work or with ourselves even. So I've talked about these three steps and it's always worth repeating whenever possible is when we're feeling that emotion of shame, what do we do? Talking to a trusted source is helpful. Resist that urge to hide, resist the urge to be isolated and go and talk to a trusted source and share your concerns. When you start to recognize that the thoughts that come from our head are just that, it's not necessarily who we are. It's certainly just, it's simply just feedback that's coming from our brain of saying, this is what I think is going on in this moment. And when we stop judging ourselves for the thoughts that our brain is offering us, then we could share them and we could look at them and we could start challenging the ones that aren't true, that aren't helping us and decide what we're going to do with these things this feedback that we're getting uh, about these experiences that we have. The second is to talk kindly to yourself. This can be something that's very difficult for us to do because we, if you start listening to how you talk to yourself, we are remarkably unkind. You know, we would never ever talk to our friends or loved ones the way that we talk to ourselves. Like, this is your problem. You wouldn't, have, you know, you're not a good surgeon. That's why this happened. You know, you think you could do so much and you can't, you know, all those things that we either consciously or unconsciously tell ourselves <clears throat> that put ourselves down. This is talking unkindly to yourself. The, the third part, and this was really remarkable. This is attributed to Brene Brown. This own the story so you can own the ending. What happens a lot when we have this uncertain event is that 
we don't exactly know what's going to happen. We have fear. So it's like we become a participant or we, we don't become a participant. We become an observer of our life and we just wait for something to happen. And of course, that's a very passive activity. And it could, who knows how it could end. And we may get lucky and it ends well, or, you know, we haven't intervened at all. So it, it could, you know, end poorly. But if you own the story, you can own the ending. And I talk about this, especially in the context of complications, of when something has gone wrong, resisting the urge to run away. So if we say, yes, this happened, but I'm going to be there for you, and I'm going to see this through, and I'm going to see myself through, and I'm going to talk to other people, and I'm going to talk kind of myself, and I'm going to make sure I you know, help out and make sure that I know how this story is going to go. I direct how this story is going to go. And taking back that control and taking back that power that we have over ourselves, the fact that we can control our thoughts, that we can control our actions um, and how we feel about ourselves, this is extremely important. So that, that to me is what owning the story is, is that I really start to own my life and what goes on in it. Okay, so now that we kind of know that we have these negative emotions and now that we articulate them, what are our choices? when we look at these emotions. So I feel terrible and we try to articulate, you know, what specifically it means. I'm frustrated, powerless, irritated, angry, um, you know, uh, isolated. We can take this emotion and we can start to question them. Where does it come from? You know, taking this as feedback, not judging it, where does this come from? And now we can start to get a better idea of the problem that we're dealing with. The second one is, our other choices, we can resist it. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to think of this frustration. It's fine. I'm not going to deal with it. We can push it away, but nothing actually happens. It doesn't get resolved. It doesn't get better. It may not get worse, but that resistance causes a lot of extra angst and energy. So by resisting them, nothing actually happens to them. And worse, if we push them into the corner and we resist them, we can actually magnify it. We give it, you know, we breathe air into it. We, we give it strength. So resisting it may help us, may not. It usually does not help us. And this third thing is this idea of we can accept them and not anything more to it, add any more to it. Yes, I had a complication and I feel terrible about it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit and I'm going to feel guilty. And I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to accept that it's there and I'm going to deserve it. I'm going to allow myself to feel it. And sometimes they just go away. This is one of those things that time just has to pass. In the complications webinar, um, I forgot who it was, I think it was Dr. Brown, who attributed to where they said that with the complication, they um, was given the advice of taking a candle and putting it on there and lighting it each night and honoring the event feeling the guilt, then blowing out the candle. And when the candle burned down to the bottom, then, you know, forgiving yourself and allowing it to pass. So that is accepting and not adding more to it. And, you know, resign yourself sounds like accepting it, but what it is, is kind of, it's almost like a, a defeat that, you know, I don't really, I don't really think about it. I'm just going to say this, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be frustrated. I'm just going to go to work and frustration is the best that I could hope for. 
in this job. That's fine. I think we all, <laughs> we've all had this feeling, haven't we? <laughs> I can't do anything. I'm just going to sit here. I may complain about it, but I've kind of resigned myself. There's no changing. You can see that it feels a little less powerless. It's still a pretty powerless place to be. You know, we can better understand them. That kind of goes into the idea of questioning them. You know, questioning, like, or better understanding, you know, why am I frustrated? Well, I mean, I these things are happening to me. Was well, that really true? And questioning them and, and better understanding them where they come from and then allowing us to say, I can change them. And that moves to your next step. Like, all right, well, I feel shame for this complication, but maybe if I reach out, maybe if I hear a little bit more, I start to realize that I shouldn't, or maybe I don't, I don't have to feel shame. I could simply feel bad about this. I'm never going to quite feel good about this, but I can question my role in this. And by questioning my role, then I can now shift these negative emotions into something that's more useful. This is a really good one because I have fallen into this um, and I, I credit one of the coaches um, that I had a few months ago um, when I was dealing with um, a difficult colleague. And, you know, this, I, I attribute this person, I called him as a victim of his own life. Like everything was always everybody else's fault, you know, and I had tried to help in the past and I became very, very frustrated. And I was like, you know, I'm trying to help you. Like what's wrong. And, and what happened was, is that he, I felt like he was a victim of his own life, but I felt that I had to be a villain. And I remember saying that out loud. I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the villain in the story. This is frustrating. Like I want to help people. I don't want to be like, feel like I'm doing something wrong. And they questioned me and said that, you know, just because they seem like they're the victim of their life, it doesn't mean that you have to be the villain, you know, and that kind of blew my mind a little bit too, because I felt like I just had to, I just fell right into that role. Like we see something we recognize and then we fall right into it. And, uh, you can actually, instead of being the villain, you could simply be a spectator, you know, and like I was mentioning before, you can choose the emotion that you want to feel. And the most recent one I had, which I, I thought was a lot of fun, was this idea of fascination. Like, that is fascinating that you think that it, everything is everybody's fault. <laughs> you know, like I can actually dissociate myself and not accept that role. And I could feel, um, you know, instead of a villain, just a spectator. So that was pretty mind-blowing for me um, of how we automatically make these assumptions about the situation. Now, but first I got a little ahead of myself because really the first thing I want to do is, is like, what does being a victim look like? And so, I mean, I think that we all know the obvious victims, like the, the um, oh gosh, no one else is helping me. And, you know, this is all terrible. And, you know, things like that. I like, can't believe that they said that to me. And I can't believe I have to do this. And, you know, those victim roles are pretty obvious. Um, but here's an interesting thing that I heard. Uh, it was Brooke Castillo that said this. Um, the banner of the victim is the righteous indignation. You know, it's those people that are absolutely positive. This is exactly how it should be. You know, I am the surgeon. I should not have to do this. You know, I am the surgeon. The administration should be asking me what's going on. You know, it's interesting because that has a little bit of a role of victim. You know, if you feel this sort of righteous indignation, it's really important to ask yourself, 
am I, do I sound like a victim here? You know, am I, am I blaming someone else for how I feel? And if you are blaming someone else for how you feel, then you are falling into the victim role. Um, and that is a very powerless place to be. Now we can, you know, like beat our chest and yell and scream, but we're still a victim. Uh, and that is a very powerless place to be. So if you find yourself in the victim role, is asking yourself, where am I blaming someone else for how I feel? And, you know, feeling safe at work, like the, the administration made me feel safe. You know, the, uh, the patient should make me feel safe. You know, everyone should be doing something for me. That's a victim. And this takes a little, this takes a lot to uncover it. And it takes some work to overcome it, to, you know, get your power back. But that's how you feel safe, because the best way to feel unsafe is to be a victim. And even a villain, I already mentioned, like, you know, being a villain doesn't feel safe either. You would think that if someone is blaming you for something, then, you know, you have the power. But being a villain does not make you feel powerful. You know, being a villain is, is you know, uh, a role that you don't necessarily want. It may give you a momentary sense of, of power, but being a villain is usually um, gaining power from uh, the wrong place. You know, no one says like, well, what a great leader that villain is, you know? Uh, and so it's really seems like powerful, much like righteous indignation. It feels powerful, but it's not powerful at all. And again, you know, when you find yourself as the victim or the villain is, you know, can I shift my role into the scientist and ask questions? Can I shift myself into the observer and simply just, you know, even be a passive observer and let everyone kind of do their own thing? And, you know, can I turn myself into the leader and instead of being the villain is, is inquire about the thoughts that I have, the motivations that I have for these actions. And, you know, can I make it clear that, you know, I'm, you know, simply expressing what I think should happen. Um, Chris Boss has a great um, strategy. If you think that someone is treating you like a villain, then oftentimes they have a fear of you. They have a fear of what you are bringing and what you can do to interact with someone and bring yourself closer together is something called an accusation audit. And that's where you can basically declare out loud what you think that they're afraid of and dismiss it. And if you're on, on the floor and a nurse, new nurse, you can tell is just nervous and or they're resentful, they seem resentful. I mean, we don't exactly know, but again, we're filtering for what they're um, showing us. And we think, I want to, I just simply want them to learn how to take care of a surgical patient, you know, but I could tell already that they're terrified of me, you know, and I don't want to be that person that they're terrified of. So I'm going to do an accusation audit and then put my request in. So I may go up to this nurse and say, you know, you probably think that I am a demanding surgeon who is just going to yell at you for not doing this. But really what I want to do is just talk about how I would really like for you to do this. Um, you know, maybe take a little closer look at the I's and O's and I'll tell you why it's important. And you can see how that's different than saying, hey, you know, look, the I's and O's were recorded. 
And I mean, this is why I never know what the urine output is. And this is why my patient is doing terribly. And so you can see the difference between those two is that, you know, one, we think we're conveying information, but we're not really um, noticing how the other person might react to us. Um, but if we know that how the person might react to us, doing that accusation audit may get you to be in a closer position, um, you're making that other person feel safe, who then is going to be able to interact with you in a way that's going to allow you to feel safe as well. So really using this idea of, you know, am I falling into these roles and how do I get out of it? And how do I choose consciously to be in the role that I want to be in is a good way to um, get out of this trap. All right. <laughs> This is my favorite. How many of us try to change people? For one thing, you know, how you could tell if you are on the path of trying to change people is it's the sentence in your head that says they should be doing this. <laughs> if in your mind should comes up, they should be doing something in your mind, you are trying to change someone else and good luck with that. <laughs> All right, so the problem is we can't get people to change. We can't get people to change unless they want to. So instead of first, you know, recognize when we're trying to change someone, if we say you should be doing this, that's a red flag to us that we're trying to change someone. So then we asked, instead of saying they should be doing this, which implies that they are wrong, and this is why it doesn't work, because in this is that four-piece four interaction that I'm talking about. It's like, in our mind, we say, they should be doing this. So in our mind, we're like, they should be doing this, and also implying they're not doing it. So my actions and words come out as, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Don't you know you're supposed to be doing this? And of course, when I come across that way, they hear this, the hell's wrong with her? I I don't even know what she wants. What's going on? Why is she, why is she being so snippy? You know, and then that process is through of like, well, this person isn't safe anymore. So now I, I either need to go hide or go on the offensive. So this is what happens when we try to change people is it's, you know, it may get lucky if they really want to change in that way and we could help. But typically that four part thing is when we start, like you should doing that is when we go wrong, but we can influence them and how we influence them is we decide how we are going to feel and we could project that. And especially if we want, if we become the person we want them to be, if we want them to be more communicative. So let's say like, I um, want them, you know, let's say again, go back to, to nurse. I want them to be able to communicate more with me. I can't just say, why didn't you call me? You should call me. Why are you calling me? I mean, a good nurse would call, you know, those are the things that we tell ourselves. And of course our actions are a little bit brief and abbreviated. If we say like, you know, I really want her to communicate more. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you know, embrace this idea of communicating more. And I want to do this from a place of a way that, that she can feel safe and want to do this and want to be receptive to this. And so I would embrace this idea of, I want to feel, um, you know, empowered to ask, and I want to feel supported. Um, and supported in communicating this uh, to this person. So I, again, you know, approach and saying, um, I would really like for you to do this. And if you can maybe, I'm really interested in knowing how you think that we should best get this on the schedule. Maybe I just don't understand. 
and embracing the support and embracing the curiosity. And when we clean up our thoughts and we get the feeling that we want uh, in place to create that environment to where they can then do what we want, that's going to be much more effective than telling someone they should do something because it immediately puts them on the defensive. The last one, and this is failure to create boundaries. So in the, the boss continuity program, and you know, we have an overlap with Stop Hating Clinic on Wednesday, we are talking about boundaries. So boundary sounds really simple, doesn't it? <laughs> like it's it's basically it's a way that we protect this. Boundaries are something that we create for ourselves to protect ourselves. And sometimes we are protecting ourselves from other people. And a lot of times we're protecting um, ourselves from ourselves. <laughs> so what a boundary is, is basically drawing a line in the sand of this is what's going to happen. But there's actually five steps to forming a boundary. The first thing is you have to define what that boundary is. For example, let's say, um, I've been working a lot with people um, about their time. So a boundary of time is like activities. Things come up all the time. You know, hey, can you do this? Is maybe a request that someone has. So they bring this request to us and we decide, is this something that I want to put on my calendar? Is this a task that I want to accept? So our boundary may be like, what is what are the things that go onto our schedule? How do I protect my time? So my boundary might be, I will not put something on my calendar unless it gives me a feeling of excitement and interest. You know, that is really, that feeling of excitement and interest is going to give me the result of my time is worth it. So I want to make sure that I feel excited and interested. So the result of putting this task on the only you know, true resource, a you know, limited resource that I have, which is my time. And I'm going to define that as my boundary. So I does not go on my schedule if I don't think that this is something that's going to excite, inspire, you know, give me a feeling that I want to feel. So that is my definition of the boundary. And so I've got to communicate that. In this particular instance, I need to communicate this to myself. I need to be able to say, hey, remember, we do not sign up for crap that does not make me excited. <laughs> <laughs> that does not like you know, fill me with excitement. So remember, we decided we were not going to sign up for this because we are not excited about this. So that is the communicating it. Um, and it is our fault if we don't communicate it. You know, if we have a wishy-washy boundary, like, I mean, I guess I'll accept it. If, if maybe I have a little bit of time, that's fine. I'll just, I mean, if I have time, I'll put it on there. But that's not really a boundary. And if I don't communicate it with myself, if I forget that I've done this, then I'll just put whatever on my calendar and I'll be mad about it. And the third one, and this is really important when we create a boundary, you must define a consequence of what happens if it is violated. And so I'll give a couple examples. The first, going back again to the time, is if someone asks me to do something and it does not excite me, I'm going to turn it down. So that is my consequence. It does not go on the schedule, I turn it down. So that is a de defined consequence that I'll have. Another good one that that may um, that's a little bit easier to understand is 
after hours. If a patient calls me after hours, I will not answer. And the most important thing is if we define it, that's great. But if we don't communicate it to someone, if a patient calls after hours, whose fault is that? Is that the patient for calling? Or is that us because we never communicated that that was not something that we wanted them to do? So, you know, that failure is on us, not on the patient. And the third thing is, is, you know, what are we going to do if the patient calls after hours and we've told them not to call? It's like, that's great. You can call if you want, but I'm not going to answer. So that's the consequence. It has to have something defined. And the fourth one is you actually have to do it. So like if, you know, and this goes both ways, I'll, I'll keep going with both examples. So a patient calls after hours. I tell them that I will not answer if they uh, call after hours. If they call after hours, I actually don't go, okay, well, just this once, but next time, I mean, really, I'm not going to, you know, we have to actually follow through because that is going to erode our trust with ourself and with that other person if we don't follow through in that consequence. And this happens with our time too. Okay, well, I really didn't want to sign up for this. It doesn't really excite me. And I remember that it doesn't really excite me. And I told myself I wasn't going to put it on the calendar, but you know, I really do have this extra space. And I I could, I could like read something, but instead I think what I'll just I'll just do this so I don't have to disappoint somebody. So you can see already how that erodes the trust that we have with ourselves um, on our time. And so not following through with a consequence is almost worse than not having a consequence because now, you know, it's not an omission. It's actually just, a, you know, ignoring it. And that is going to hurt us because it's going to make our boundary ineffective. And the fifth one is that, you know, I added this recently over time, which is, you know, we can violate our boundaries if we like our reasons. So let's say a patient calls after hours, we don't normally answer it, but we see who it is and we know that they would not call unless it was a good reason. So in that case, that patient called after hours, but I like my reasons, something must be up and it would cause more distress not to answer this. Um, going back to the time um, scenario, if I kind of want to do it, you know, I know it doesn't really excite me, but I know that it'll mean something to someone else that I may put this on my calendar because, you know, I really, I want to support them, even though it doesn't really excite or inspire me to, you know, it may be a waste of time, but maybe not because really it means something to them. So that as long as you can really clearly articulate why you violate your boundary, it's still going to keep that trust with yourself maintained. And if you remember from the very beginning, what makes us feel unsafe is lack of trust in ourself. So safety, as I mentioned before, we are responsible for the emotions that we feel. Safety at work is our responsibility. And safety at work comes primarily from our ability to trust ourselves, to listen to ourselves, and understand what we're thinking, understanding what we're feeling, and having our actions and our um, and getting our results that are reflective of our ability to trust ourselves and and do what's right for ourselves. We making mistakes and being able to deal with those negative emotions and knowing that we are we can be trusted with those negative emotions that we can choose what we do with them. These are the things that are most important. So you know, and I also wanted to mention um, this is an opportunity. 
for talking about coaching. So what coaching has done, like all these lessons here, I get ongoing coaching myself. So I'm, I'm a coach and uh, I get coaching myself. These are just ways for us to uncover our thoughts. All of these lessons that I've told you about are based on lessons that I've learned from getting coached. So I advocate for that too, whether that's me or someone else, it's up to you. If you're interested, then go to bosssurgery.com. There's the boss continuity program. You can sign up monthly. You can sign up annually. You can get one-on-one if you want. You can reach out to me if this is something that's interesting to you. If you only want one-on-one, just send me an email. I don't have a direct thing um, other than the one session off that you get from bosssurgery.com. So feel free to reach out to me because this is what I want for you. This is my office. You know, I've now built... Um, safety within work. Um, I changed my environment, which certainly helped, but it doesn't um, keep me from having some of these negative emotions that come up. It doesn't keep me from feeling um, anxiety or fear or frustration. But you know, having this core group of people where I've really worked through a lot of these issues together with them, um, I've really learned a lot about those four steps of an interaction that we have about how we're all running around with our own thoughts and our own um, uh, experiences going on and just how complicated it actually is. And having the awareness that everyone is in their own head is having a lot more grace and um, openness with other people and really building that trust, not just with yourself. The ability to have a strong team is to build that trust, extending it past you and extending that trust, giving the the ability to create an environment where they can feel trust is the most important um, aspect when it comes to feeling safe at work is then extending that feeling of safety, allowing the opportunity to feel safe for those people that you work with. I hope that you enjoyed that. I hope you got something out of that. And uh, this was just something that I thought was really necessary as we're all just sort of frustrated with all of our lives going on. So I, you know, wasn't sure it would go to a whole hour. Uh, I'm happy to to talk. I think it's uh, Alicia. How are you? Yes, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. Very important thoughts. Um, as always, uh, you know, through the podcast and what you put out in, in the Facebook page is fantastic. Um, I have a question. When the first one, when you said that you, you know, sometimes we make ourselves a movie on what the other person is thinking, mm-hmm. how much, like, I think a lot for me is based on past experiences. So it's, it's, you know, sometimes I get surprised because the movie is not the one that I thought, but the movie that I'm thinking is basically based on what other people's reaction was mm-hmm. and uh, it, pre- previously. And so, yeah, but yeah, uh, I mean, there's a reason that we think that, right? So there's a reason that we feel like they're thinking something. And, but first is giving them the benefit of the doubt and first understanding that they are also um, coming in with their own experiences. So what you can do is decide how you want to feel. Let's say what you think might be happening is true, um, but you don't know for sure. So how do you know? How would you know that the story that you have in your mind is true? Uh, yeah, no idea. Uh, yeah, you can, you, you're right. The power is within yourself. Yeah. So uh, yeah, totally, a hundred percent. 
the most important thing is that for me in that particular instance, if I find myself, you know, feeling an emotion that I don't want to feel, you can shift that into one that's going to be useful. And I find curiosity is a good way, like when I'm really frustrated and say like, I don't know, what did I actually hear? And then asking myself, like, what if I just sort of inquire? And by inquiring this, I'm going to gather the information so I could then make an informed decision about what's actually going on. The <clears throat> example that I gave of my friend who called and I had this assumption about what he thought. Now he told me what he, what he thought, which was wrong uh, of what I thought was thinking. But let's say, you know, when I did call him and he's like, well, this is, I want you to take, take this over. And I, I still had the opportunity to shift into a different one. I mean, it could have still been irritated, but I could, that's not going to get me anywhere. So if I say, well, I'm not sure how you got, how you're thinking that. So tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking and, you know, what is your thought process behind that? And really, instead of taking what we think and running with it, we can ask and then decide, do we still want to run with it or do we want to keep asking questions? And then if it is the scenario that we think, like, then we can start to say, like, how do I influence this into a way? And how we influence other people is that we offer them thoughts. We offer them um, opinions that they can then take with and run. Um, and so that is the influencing part that we have is like, how do we find a way to bring together to where now we have the ability to listen to each other versus you know, throwing, um, you know, defenses against them, either, you know, defending ourselves or, or, you know, creating good offense. And how do we bring it together to get to where we want? How do we influence that person to what we want? Or how do we gather for them more information that's going to lead to understanding that's going to give us a different result that we want? Does that help? Yes, absolutely. hundred um, percent. Sometimes it's the decision fatigue. And if, you know, if it's at the beginning of the day, uh, this can happen and it makes sense. And at the end of the day, when you have faced already a um, uh, hundred hurdles, it's kind of hard. That's, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then your, um, yeah, your previous experiences come. See, I think since you know them and they're the easiest that come to you, they take over and then, yeah, I, I see myself doing that a lot. Like, yes, give me an example. Uh, yeah, it's a really decision fatigue. Like I know, like if I go into the clinic, for example, and I'm in a, you know, Monday morning, I am rested and uh, I had a good night's sleep. Uh, I work out before going to, into the, the clinic. I can face a lot of hurdles and I don't overread things. But if it's at the end of the day where I had a lot of delays in the operating room and it's like, no, I can't take anything. Like all my, like, I, I can't, I, I just can't, you know? So do you have to, uh, do I have to what take Make any decisions? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't think what you're faced at the beginning of the day is different than what you're faced at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And for me, the decision fatigue, I notice that comes a lot into play. And so 
Well, I completely agree. And I feel this way every time at the end of no- uh, clinic doing notes. <laughs> yes, yes. That, that's true too. Because mm-hmm. um, many times I delay my notes because I've, I, I say I've had it for today. I just, you know, I just can't. So, but then of course they, you have to do them the next day. Maybe the next day you're off and maybe you want to enjoy, you know, with your family or some, or whatever you want to do for yourself. And then, but you have to do the notes. And then if you don't do them, they pile up. And then if they pile up, you get a call and, mm-hmm. you know. And what happens with that is that we have created an unsustainable schedule, you know, and, and I've seen this myself too. It's like in our mind, clinic is this, the notes afterwards are like an afterthought. We feel like we should just do them. And the problem is, is that we're fighting reality. This is resisting reality. We are tired. And after a day, either you make your day less stressful or you find a way to get rid of the crap at the end. You know, meaning that like, how do you find ways to do your notes during clinic at the time? And that we resist the urge to, we resist fixing that because it usually means um, trading one discomfort for another. So if we make our slots longer, for one thing, we may not feel like we have that choice. And the second is that we do have that choice. We worry like, well, how am I going to get paid? And how many, you know, um, and how is everybody going to get seen? So there's a lot of thoughts that go into us allowing an unsustainable schedule. And that's, I think, the first thing to recognize is like, what is really the problem? The, the problem is, is that we have created unsustainable schedules. And we do this based on all the thoughts that we tell ourselves that we're supposed to do. So it's not actually the problem of the decision that you make at the end of clinic. The problem is, is that this is not something that my, you know, our deep, true, authentic self says, this is, this is too much. And the problem is, as high achievers, we can achieve so much that what happens is, is that we just keep piling it on and telling ourselves that there's something wrong with us. <laughs> yes, agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so in this particular case, this is not something that you're going to fix by thinking about it better. Yeah, 100% agree. And even when you put maybe too many cases on, because in your mind you can do, you know, five cases on a Friday and then there's delays and then, you know, say, oh, sure, I can do that. But then, yeah, it's it's an over think over uh, like you think you can do more. Mm-hmm. For for a millions of millions of reasons, like you think you can do it, you think you need to do it, uh, you think you know you have to do it, like oh, um, yeah, that's absolutely. You have discovered true. the secret. The secret <laughs> is not how to outthink an unsustainable schedule. The the secret is to understand why we think we have to do it in the first place. Yes, <laughs> you no, you you. Uh, I mean, you you gave me the key. Because the problem is, is before and not after. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 it makes sense that the problem is before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the end, when we're spent and our body says enough, the, in that moment, what we're doing is res- resisting reality. We're resisting that we are not in a capacity that it's reasonable to do this. We have created an unsafe environment based on all the thoughts that led to the emotion that led us to create an unsustainable schedule. And what you have to do is 
challenge the thoughts that started it, just like you said, challenge the thoughts that I have to see all these people, challenge the thoughts that I can't um, have less people because I'll make less money. You know, those are the thoughts that we have to go back to the original ones that create the action of adding too many people and adding too much in a day that is unsustainable and, you know, fixing those thoughts that lead to the result of an unsustainable schedule. Yeah, I agree. And it's tough. It is. It is. It was easy. (laughs) (laughs) But at least we're addressing the right problem. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really um, un- untangling the, you know, everything, yeah. I completely agree. Well, good. Well, I'm so glad that you spent your time here because, you know, our free is not free. No, I love it. I love it. I, I I'm, you know, good. truly. <laughs> All right, good. Well, so I'm so glad you came and I hope you have a great night. And of course, you feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or any feedback or anything that you want me to cover. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your help. Likewise.